Psalm 16, 1 through 11. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are excellent ones, in whom all my, in whom, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out, or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my cho- chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to shield, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Welcome, Aletheia Church. Appreciate you guys being here. Uh, is anybody else hoping as much as I am that Parker has his own radio show one day? Just that deep, deep voice. Whatever channel you're on one day, bro, just let me know. I'd love to tune into your podcast or whatever it is, man, just to hear that voice. So, good morning. We are finishing up um, our series in Psalms and Proverbs uh, this morning. Uh, we appreciate you guys being here. If this is your first time, my name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome to Aletheia Church. Uh, we're glad to have you. Uh, we hope you are enjoying your final Sunday without uh, a plethora of college students uh, beginning to fill the seats. And so, I uh, hope you're ready to be really friendly and say hi to some new people in the coming weeks as there will probably be a couple hundred college students that will walk through these doors over the course of the next six weeks. And we want to love on them and have an opportunity to share the love of Christ with them and their time here in Gainesville. And so um, I hope, though, that um, this morning as we, as we dive into Psalm 16, I hope that you've enjoyed our time uh, in the Psalms and the Proverbs as much as I have uh, this summer. Uh, we, we've kind of seen um, in, our, in our time that We've been encouraged to, to see our hearts begin to be inclined to a, a posture of worship uh, in the Lord and to be uh, more fully engaged and to be more intentional in seeing the Lord uh, fan our affections for him in worship, but then also as we've looked at the Proverbs, uh, to pursue wisdom in that worship, that, that God wants his people to be a people that love and display uh, uh, an affection of, of undying love and grace towards him, uh, uh, being appreciative of that same grace that he's lavished upon us, but also in that, uh, being shrewd and wise in the way that we live in the world around us. And so we, we've seen in Proverbs even that it's not just knowledge we're after, but it's a, a, a more uh, worldly idea of understanding that the decisions we make have ramifications outside even our own lives and understanding that the decisions we make if we act in ways that are, are wise bring glory to God and show that God is in his rightful place as creator. And what I mean by that is when I say when we, when we live in a way with wisdom and give God the attention that he deserves, right? people will inevitably say, why does it go well with them? 
Why, why, do, why does that family tend to, in the midst of having difficulty raising young children, live in such a way that there's order in the home? And we can say, well, God is orderly. God designed things. And to live life in such a way that, that exudes the wisdom of the Lord will bring honor to his name. And so our goal this summer has, has been to, to encourage you and to encourage ourselves, right, to both seek after kind of these two key themes in our walks with the Lord. This idea of fanning our affections continuously for the Lord in worship, but also pursuing wisdom in a way that will allow us to be both salt and light to the world around us. And specifically for me, I've been encouraged a lot in our time in the Psalms because I, I tend to be, and I don't know if you guys are like me, I tend to be much more head knowledge. Uh, my walk with the Lord tends to be very theologically based a lot of times, a lot of doctrine based. And so when I get to the Psalms, there's doctrine in the Psalms, but a lot of the times when I'm at the Psalms, the Lord just uses his word to cut right to the heart. Right? And to, to play on these things called emotions that I've learned over the last year that all human beings have, and that I need to figure out how to process through and how to walk in a way that glorifies him. And so I've been encouraged to better understand how worship can help reset my soul to the realities and difficulties of life with a renewed sense of purpose and hope in God. And I believe the psalm that we're going to look at this morning is going to help us do that because the Psalms in reality are designed to incline our hearts to find our hope in God and in nothing else. I love this quote that I found this past week from Pastor Trevor Joy um, out in Dallas, Texas. And here's what he says just about the Psalms in general. And I want you guys to, to think about the magnitude of what he's saying here and how God uses these songs that have been pres preserved for thousands of years uh, to lead us to a greater worship of Jesus. Look at what he says. He says, The Psalms are unique and that they teach us to pray by bringing every thought and emotion in the human experience into the context of God's story. What he's saying there is that the Psalms put to reality the everyday struggles that you and I face and allow us to see that God's people have been walking through those things for generations. He goes on to say this, through the Psalms, our hearts, whether broken or bursting with joy, become aligned with God's heart. The Psalms help lead our thinking and our feelings Godward. That wherever we are in our lives, whatever befalls us, whether pleasure or pain, the words that come from God become steps by which we find God. Right, guys, ultimately, right, Every single one of us, if we're here this morning, the chief desire of our heart this morning should be to have a greater view of God as we leave this morning so that we might take that out into our week and worship him more. And that if we see a greater worship of Jesus in our lives, that will inevitably lead to other people wanting to worship and know Jesus because they're gonna see us and they're gonna say, these people love God and we can't figure out why. If there's an inescapable joy that is derived deep within our hearts, that is attractive to a world around us. And so I want you to think about this question before we dive into Psalm 16 more in depth this morning. How many of you have ever had someone in your life who, when they have chosen to speak into your life with wisdom or knowledge or with advice, they're super encouraging? 
that there's just certain people in your life where if they said something to you, you're going to take that advice and follow through on it. You're going to follow through on what they have to say. Maybe it was a dad, uh, maybe it was a coach, maybe it was a boss, maybe not a boss, but maybe it was a boss. Maybe it was a close friend, maybe it was a spouse, maybe it was a, a family member like an uncle or an aunt. I had an aunt when I was younger who just, whatever she said to me, it just made sense. She loved God, and I didn't love God at the time, but I knew she loved God and she loved me. And whatever she said just made sense to me. And so these people, they, they tend to have a unique ability to say the right thing for whatever you're going through at any given time, and you would respond to them. For me, for me specifically, I remember in high school, you guys look, look at me. I am not a bastion of athletic prowess. <laughs> five, six, a buck 35 soaking wet. I was not much smaller in high school than I am now. Maybe about 20, 30 pounds, give or take, and a couple inches here or there. My family were the original hobbits. <laughs> but I had a football coach in high school. He played offensive line at Ole Miss. I got no booze there. That's good. No one cares about Ole Miss and the SEC down here, I guess, right? No one's ever threatened by them down here. I love it. If I'd have said Alabama, I would have gotten hissed at. Or Georgia, right? There we go. I heard somebody, right? But this football coach, he had the ability to just motivate me. Like he, he would, my senior year of high school, I was bench pressing 250 pounds, and I was... Uh, squatting 300. And some of you guys that actually lived in here are looking at me like, dude, there's no way. And I'm here to tell you, I look back on that time in my life and I'm like, there was no way. I have no clue how that was happening. But that guy had an ability to motivate this 17-year-old, lazy, self-centered, self-righteous young man, right, to get into the weight room, to work out hard, to come to practice and give everything I had every day on the football field even though I wasn't even starting consistently and playing for my team a lot. He had, he had a unique ability to, to get me to want to follow him, right, and believe that he had my best interest at heart, which was also the interest of our football team. And Coach Rayburn motivated me to do things that I didn't know I could do. He motivated me to lift weights in a way that I didn't know I could. He motivated me to block people and run people over and tackle people that were twice my size at times, and at times get ear hold and get a concussion and be taken out of the game. But he had an ability to give me a confidence in doing things that I didn't know I was capable of doing, especially when things got hard. And I would submit to you that I believe that when David writes Psalm 16, he is writing that psalm to the nation of Israel to say, look to God because no matter what season of life you are in, God is the center of our hope and our courage and we will be able to walk through this no matter what. David, as he sings out to God and begs for God to be present in his distress, simultaneously shows us the confidence that we can have in him. And what this psalm teaches us is that in the midst of our distress, God is there. 
that in the midst of our struggle and our strife, God is there and he's not just present, but he's there to be our hope, our courage, our refuge, and our hiding place. So I'm gonna pray that God might not just uh, allow us to read the word of God this morning, but that he might penetrate our souls with the truth of this psalm this morning so that we would leave encouraged and hopeful as we study this psalm this morning. Will you pray with me? Bow your heads. Lord, your word is such a gift to us, and we are so gracious and grateful that that you have given it to us. And Lord, I personally am thankful for the Psalms and the way in which they tug at our emotions and they try to drive at the deeper places of our hearts so that we might instead turn and shine a light on those places and allow them to be given over to you so that there might be a greater worship of you. Lord, use your word this morning to encourage us and give us a courage to trust you in times of difficulty and times of strife. Lord, do what only you can do and use my words to encourage us with your word. And I ask this all in Jesus' name, amen. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up. Psalm 16, it'll also be on the board. If you need a Bible, we have a table back in the back that has Bibles back there. Feel free to grab one. That is our gift to you. But this is what... um, David starts off by saying in Psalm 16, and I want you to notice, I've, I've, I've built up in my introduction to this sermon saying, hey, this is going to be a super encouraging sermon, a place where we can kind of take courage and refuge in God, but look at the contrast of the start of how David begins this psalm. He says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge, right? Seems a little bit to be in opposition to what I said earlier, right? It seems instead of finding courage and hope in the Lord that David's actually crying out to God at the start of this psalm, that he's, he's in this place of distress. And we see David crying out saying, preserve me, God, you are my refu- refuge. And if you've spent any time studying First and Second Samuel or uh, First and Second Chronicles or any of the accounts of what went on in David's life, you know that David throughout his life faced a number of trials. I mean, from wanting to be killed by the king that had put him uh, underneath of him to uh, being betrayed by his own son and having to flee his kingdom for a time to having to deal with the rape of his daughter to dealing with uh, constant war and battles with uh, kingdoms outside of the nation of Israel, David faced constant trials and constant ups and downs. I mean, his entire life was just centered around being betrayed. I mean, even his best friend Jonathan's dad uh, betrayed him and tried to kill him on multiple occasions. But if you notice here in Psalm 16, what I want you to see, if we're going to understand the rest of this psalm and understand what David is trying to to sing about and preach to us, we need to first understand that if we want to derive confidence and hope in God the way that David does in this psalm, the first place we have to go is in recognizing our own neediness. That David doesn't start in his own power, his own ability, his own ability to lead the kingdom of Israel, or his ability as a military commander, or a great orator, or a great singer. No, he starts at a place of understanding his own neediness. 
And then we must also, in recognizing our own neediness, recognize God's ability to meet us in that neediness. Right, David says two things there, right? He says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. What's he communicating there? He's saying, Lord, I am walking through one of the most difficult seasons of my life, and I am unable to do this on my own. I need you to preserve me, me, and only you can save me from this situation. Let me give you an an example of how I see this playing out, and maybe this example will hit for some of you guys. Maybe it it won't. But um, raising kids can be really frustrating sometimes. It's easily the hardest thing I've ever done and will easily be the hardest thing I ever do, I think. And we are in currently in one of those stages with our youngest son where it is a little bit harder than it normally is. And by a little bit, I mean a lot of bit. <laughs> like Friday was my Sabbath day. There was no rest, by the way. But Friday was my, my Sabbath day to rest with my family. And by about 7 o'clock, I looked at Jackie and said, I, I can't go around him right now because I'm not going to be able to love him right now. It's your turn. My wife is great. She's like, she was actually like super patient with me. She's like, okay, well, that's not okay. <laughs> but, but, I'll, but I'll go deal with him right now. <laughs> so she does. She goes and takes care of him. And then, you know, that, the Lord used that to kind of help reset me a little bit. But, but he, Josiah is in this say, stage of, of life right now where um, he wants to be super independent, but he is unable to successfully execute the level of independence he wants in his life right now. Therefore, therefore, creating a trail of terror in his wake everywhere he goes, from food everywhere to clothes everywhere to messes everywhere to screaming and yelling at everyone when he's not getting his way. It is a lot of fun in the Anderson house right now. Amen. <laughs> and, and, and what's really, really kind of difficult for me as his father is I, I know that God has placed me in his life to see him grow into this independence and to see him grow and mature into a man who will run after the Lord with reckless abandon one day and one day have kids of his own who will do the very same thing to him that he is doing to me. And I will be the grandfather that comes over, gives him a hug, and leaves when things get hard. (laughs) Just like my dad does to me. But what's really, really difficult for me in this season right now is as his father, and I, I look at him and I see him struggling, what do I want to do more than anything? I want to walk in there and I want to assist and I want to fix it and do it on my own. And he is adamant that he does not need me. And we are at a crossroads. It isn't until he asks for my help that I'll step in and be able to assist him Because really, in reality, what I want him to understand is that that dad is there for him when needed, that I am a refuge, that I am a protector for him. But he needs to understand that he needs to submit and ask for dad's help in doing that. And guys, it works much the same way with our Heavenly Father. That God in his mercy oftentimes will turn us over to our own devices. Because if you think back to Genesis chapter 3, what has been the problem since the fall? God, we don't need you. God, we've got this. God, we can figure this out on our own. And God in his mercy, and it is mercy, turns us over to ourselves and our own self-righteousness and our own self-assurance and says, go for it. 
figure this out. The land is cursed, but go ahead, figure it out. You've got this, right? And in turning us over to ourselves, we're brought to these same places that my son Josiah gets brought to when he sat there for the last 20 minutes and then he gets done and he stands up and the shoes are on the wrong feet. We are just like Josiah walking through life, wanting to do things on our own with our shoes on the wrong feet. And God and his mercy is there for us. But as David says here, We need to understand that own neediness first and cry out to God, understanding that he is able to meet us in that neediness the same way that Josiah knows that mom or dad is able to step in there and fix whatever mistake he makes. David has this realization that in the end, he needs God to move if anything is going to get better. And look at what he says in verse 2. He says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. You might find it strange that he uses the word Lord twice there. Right? If you understand the Hebrew here, he actually uses two separate words in talking about how he cries out to God in these seasons of needing him for refuge and protection. Right, that first word is the word Yahweh. Right, and it's actually the name that God uses for himself when talking to Moses. And so in that first uh, example of the word Lord, if you have an ESV, you'll probably notice that whenever the word Yahweh is used, it's actually done in all caps. It's to help you to make a differentiation between the words for Lord in the Old Testament. Right? So, but David starts out by saying here in verse 2, I say to the Lord, he says, I say to God, I say to the creator of all things, Jehovah Jireh, king of the world, creator of all, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. That second word for Lord there in verse 2 is the Hebrew word Adonai which just means uh, Lord or leader. And so what David does here in verse 2 is he declares to, to those of us who are reading and singing through this psalm, right? hey, there is an embracing of my own neediness, but there's also a recognition of who God really is. That if we're going to experience this level of courage and hope that, that David experiences here, There's a proper understanding of who we are, which is incapable of walking through the deepest, darkest seasons of our life on our own without help from the Lord. There's also a recognition of putting God in his proper place, that he is Lord, ruler, master, and owner of all. When you hear the phrase, Jesus is Lord, what do you think of? Just think about that for a second. Let that, let that just sit in your brain for a second and just reflect. When you hear those words, Jesus is Lord, what comes to mind? You know, when, I, when, I, when I thought about that this past week as I was preparing, a, a number of different things kind of conjured up in my mind. You know, for, the first one was those cheesy bumper stickers that I've seen over the years as I've, as I've driven my car around town. Maybe it takes you back to a sermon you heard at some point in time. Maybe, maybe it's a phrase you were taught in Awana. I don't know. If you're honest, though, how many of you, when you hear that phrase, it causes you to stop, pause, 
and think about Jesus' place as the ruler of your life. That really understanding that, that if we are committed disciples and followers of Jesus Christ, to use the term Lord to describe Jesus means that he is ruler, king, and has all authority over every single area of your life. It means who you marry, how you raise your kids, what you do in your workplace, what you do in your neighborhood, what you do with your free time, what you do with your rest. There is no area of your life that doesn't belong to Jesus if we understand this word properly. So when you hear that term, Jesus is Lord, does it cause action in your life? Does it cause you to understand your rightful place in the universe? Does it cause you to think about your neighbor who you have no relationship with, but you know God loves that person dearly and wants them to hear the gospel? Does it cause you to think about how rude you were to your coworker and how you might need to reconcile with them? Right? Understanding the lordship of Christ is much deeper than just mental assent. That it goes belong well beyond theological lines of understanding doctrine. It goes and penetrates us to the point of action. Where Jesus says, you are not worthy of being my disciple unless you are willing to surrender all and take up your cross and follow me. That's what we mean when we say that Jesus is Lord. That's what David is getting at when he starts talking about the lordship of his God. That to follow Jesus is to place him on the throne of your life and not to allow anything else to dethrone him. Not just to pay lip service to him as king, but to follow him without respect to your own preferences or desires, to engage the world around you with the gospel, to surrender your time and talents and energy in order to equip others with the good news, to encourage, to encourage others that are brothers and sisters in the faith to walk out and live out their identity in Christ, to empower others to take the gospel forward into places where it hasn't gone. That's the call of following Jesus as Adonai, as Lord. That we would surrender, that we would engage the world around us, that we would equip others, that we would encourage them, and that we would empower others to live out the implications of this identity in Christ. And here's my fear as I, as I think through this, right? Because the biblical pattern we see throughout the New Testament is when we see Jesus talking to his disciples, we see that he calls them to submit to him as Savior, right? To recognize their own neediness, but also to uh, submit to him and surrender their lives to him as Lord. And my fear for much of Christianity that I see going on around me is that we are really, really comfortable with Jesus as Savior, but we're not very comfortable with him as Lord. That we're okay with the Jesus that would die for our sins, the one that would put himself in our place on the cross and take the wrath of God on his shoulders, the one that would forgive us of our sins and reconcile us to the Father, but if I'm honest, even for myself, 
There are many times where I'm not interested in surrendering the life I want to live to Jesus as Lord. And guys, if I'm honest, oftentimes in my life, I see high, high peaks and I see see low, low valleys. And my courage and my hope and my confidence in God often wavers. And I think one of the main reasons that might be is because I'm not willing to trust God's design and plan. I'm willing only to do it when it's convenient for me. And here's something I know from, from reading the scriptures over the last 12, 13, 14 years of my life. Jesus doesn't play second place to anyone. He's not going to play it to me. He's not going to play it to Gator football. He's not going to play it to your job. He's not going to play second place to your family. When he says that he is the Christ, that he is the Lord worthy of our worship, that means chief place in our lives. And that means every area of our lives gets surrendered to him. And you may be sitting there thinking, like, well, why does this matter? What does this have to do with hope and confidence? You know, if we're going to look and see that David's deriving great hope and confidence in God this morning, why does this matter? I think it's this. If you want to experience the type of courage in God that David experiences and sings about in this psalm, you must first understand what David does. That he needs God to save him, but he needs God to lead him. He needs God's lordship. David's basically going to say here in verses 3 through 4 that there are basically two uh, type of people who respond to the lordship of God. Right? Look at what he says in verses 3 and 4. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. Two groups. I would submit this to you guys. Every human being falls in one of two categories, and it's one of these two. Either they fall into the category of saint, which is a word used throughout Scripture to uh, denote a follower of God, or in our case, on this side, post-resurrection of Jesus, a follower of Jesus Christ, or someone who isn't. Right? And David says here that saints, here's what's true of them. They are excellent. He delights in them. He loves being in community with other people who love God and want to follow God. Right? He, he desires to be in community with them. But those that don't, they have no community. And I want you to look at the word he uses to describe them. The sorrows of those who run after another God. It's, it's, it's really quite simple. Right? If, if Jesus is not the Lord of your life, something else is. And the promise that David makes to us here in this psalm is that the only thing that comes from following something else other than him is sorrow. It may bring uh, temporary satisfaction. It may bring temporary gratification. It may bring temporary happiness. But the thing that will follow in the end from following anything other than Jesus is sorrow. And notice that there is no third option here. There, are, there, there is no option that David puts down that says those that tend to follow God when it's convenient for them, those that have mentally assented to following him, 
those that have made uh, doctrinal truths their priority, but have seen no true life change and no following after God, right? David says here, either they're saints and they're in submission to God's lordship and ultimately to Christ, or you're not and you reap your own sorrow. I'm reminded of the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter seven. Let me read these to you. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. Who? You workers of lawlessness. Because there's an, there's an expectation that if we submit to the lordship of Jesus, your life will change. You're not going to be perfect. Like, hear me out on this. I'm not up here preaching a sermon that is telling all of us that if we're going to truly be followers of Jesus that, that make an impact in our world, we have to be perfect following everything in the law obediently. But what I am saying is there is a pattern of obedience that will follow in the life of a believer. And it will be noticeable. And I, what I love about what Jesus says there, when he says that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, he doesn't say, I will send you away because you didn't understand sound doctrine. He doesn't say, I will send you away Right, because you didn't understand the Greek and the Hebrew. Now he says, I will send you away because you are a worker of lawlessness. And what he's saying there is you never put me on the throne of your life. You never submitted to my lordship and I will not share my throne with another. Either you surrender or you don't. And so the question kind of then becomes for us, well, wait a minute, David is talking about this allegiance and this hope and this surrender to God. So what does allegiance to Jesus look like? Go back to Psalm 16 and look at verses five through seven with me. David says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. I believe that we see uh, from David three things uh, that he kind of came to understand and what it meant to look like to have your allegiance in Christ. Right? The first one is this, that God is our portion in our cup. Right? And so here's where we, we start moving into this territory where we have to have a proper understanding of God if we're going to have a proper understanding of how we can submit to him and trust him. Right? And so when, when David says, I bless the Lord, uh, excuse me, the Lord is my chosen portion in my cup, like, we don't talk like that anymore. Like, how many of you guys are like, man, like, my wife is my portion in my cup? Right? Like, I mean, people would be like, oh, that's really cute. What does that mean? <laughs> right? Right, but what, what David is communicating is at, he's actually preaching to himself here. Right, when he says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup, right, he's saying, hey, 
Here, here's what we need to do. We need to take a step back and understand the, the, the grandness and the magnitude of God. And we need to understand, right, that God keeps his promises and that one of his promises is that we are his and we get him. And he is trustworthy and we can know him. Right? He's, he's remembering back and he's calling on Israel, hey, remember, remember the amount of times God has come through for us? Like, like, let's just think about that for a second. He preserved us in Egypt throughout a famine. He delivered us from a major world superpower in Egypt. He then sent us through the wilderness and then delivered over the kingdoms in the promised land to us, the land that he had promised our fathers. Then once he delivered that land over to us, he gave us prosperity in the land as we followed him. And then along with that prosperity, he defended us multiple times from attacking enemies. And in the midst of all of that, we have been his people in amongst some of the biggest world superpowers in the region, and we have survived and maintained and persevered because he is our God and we are his people, because he is our portion. Right, David's preaching to himself, look, if, I, if I'm gonna call out to God as my refuge and to preserve me, I need to understand that he's worthy of that. I'm gonna preach that to my soul, and therefore, I'm gonna remind myself that he is my cup and my portion because his promises are always true, and I can take them to the bank. That he is good. And he goes on to say, God, you hold my lot Right? He's still preaching to himself. He's like, God, you have defended me. You have seen me through. You have kept me secure. Saul tried to kill me multiple times. Failed. My son tried to steal the kingdom from me. Failed. You've protected me from all sorts of invading kingdoms. Protected me. Over and over again, you have delivered me. And in the same way, we can look at God and look at the promises God has made. And one of those promises is that he who has begun a good work in you will see it through to the day of Christ Jesus. Both a promise of God's goodness towards us, but also a promise in resting in the defense of God for your soul. That we derive this courage not from you know, resolving to do this, but instead looking to who God is and knowing him as trustworthy. And then lastly, he says this in verse six. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. When he talks about lines there, he's just referring to, to boundaries and life. Ultimately, he's referring to God's commands. And look at what he says about them. The lines have fallen for me where? In pleasant places. And then look at what he says about God's law. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Right, he says, I look at God's law, I look at his boundaries as something not to be upset about, not as something God's doing to rob me of joy, but I look at God's law as life giving as something to delight in. I look at it as an inheritance that God has given to me right, as his son, the ability to know how to live uprightly before him, to know how the universe operates, and in living that way, knowing how I can live in such a way that's not going to steal me joy, that's not going to make life harder for me, 
that that's not going to reap sorrow the way that those that don't know him reap sorrow for themselves. That as an inheritance, we can know God and we can know how to live for what we were created for. He goes on to say in verse 7, those lines are really just counsel. The Lord is my, the, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night, he also instructs my heart. That God's word instructs my heart and gives me counsel and leads me out of the destruction that I often create for myself. And instead, I will choose to gaze at God and set his law and his ways ever before me. Because he is always before me, because he is at my right hand, and I will not be shaken. Do you see the delineation of what David says here? I delight in the law. I trust in the law. I'm going to pursue the law. I'm going to see the lines and boundaries that God has set out as being for my good and his glory. Why? Because I have set the Lord ever before me, and he is at my right hand, and I will not be shaken. He goes back to the promises. He says, ultimately, I know I can trust this stuff because I know I can trust God. David recognizes something that I think I am often quick to miss in my own life. And it's something that one of my favorite pastors said, probably almost at this point, 15 years ago. Um, one of the first times I ever heard him preach. Uh, he's a guy by the name of Matt Chandler. He's the leader of Acts 29. Um, He's a pastor out in Dallas, Texas. It's the organization that we're a part of that, is, that God is using us to help plant more churches all over the U.S. and all over the world. And he, this is just something he said. He's like, you, that if we understand Scripture properly, and if we understand how we relate to God, then we, we should understand that God's law is something to delight in because it's for our good and His glory. That God gives commands and boundaries and lines, as David says here, as a way not just to restrain us and rob us of joy, but, but to bring joy. And, he, and he, he, he dropped this line, and I, it has stuck with me for over a decade. No one robs you of more joy than you. The, the biggest enemy to our joy and resting and identity in Christ is oftentimes ourselves. And David says here, to, to place God as Lord of your life is to realize his commands are life-giving, not life-taking. To listen to his counsel, to set him ever before you, should give you great hope and great courage because you're resting in the promises of God. And if the promises of God always return good, guess what? His commands probably return good. Anyone who's a parent in here understands how this works. Right? People tell me all the time, what's it like raising boys? I'm like, basically, God has given me the job to make sure my son does not kill himself sometime before the age of 18. I don't have girls, so I cannot relate. Girls may be completely different. I don't know. I would love to hear someone that has girls in here to explain that to me. But boys, I've, I've, I've seen this now over the course of the last eight years. My primary role and responsibility is to prevent my kids from doing something that will kill themselves. And some of you guys who are younger, the, par the parents in here are like, yeah. The parents of boys in particular are like, oh, yeah. Right? Some of you younger people in here are like, what is he talking about? I don't know what it is about boys, but I, I just saw this last night. Derek and Caitlin's youngest child, William, I counted four times he would have seriously injured himself in a matter of six minutes. <laughs> Sitting in a chair, 
He decides, I'm going to get down. And most people that get down, what are they going to do? If they're small, they're going to turn, get down, feet first, you know, get out. Face dive. <laughs> I'm talking just, boom. Caitlin, super mom, eating with one hand, grabs him like this with the other. That child has no idea the pain that he was just saved from. Right? So, so our job as parents is like consistently, like all the time, like my kid, like one of his favorite things to do when he was little, like the oven's on, can I get in there? You guys are laughing. Like you think like, oh, is he just dumb? My kid is really smart and really dumb. Because it's just this, it's like, oh, man, that looks like a lot of fun. Dude, it is 450 degrees in there. Okay, sure enough, walk over. Mom, Jackie's like this, taking stuff out of the oven, like this, screaming, Kevin, please come grab him, you know? Our sons just constantly look for these ways, right, to injure themselves. And so when Jackie and I create rules and boundaries and lines in our home, We've been able to have conversations with Gideon as he's gone, gotten older. Gideon, these, these boundaries, these lines we're putting in place, we're not putting these in place to make your life miserable. Like, believe it or not, like, dad doesn't have a rule that climbing up into the pine tree and jumping onto the trampoline is a bad idea because I, like, want to see you suffer every time you walk outside and look up at that pine tree. Like, that, like I, did, I was like, man, how can I make Gideon's life miserable? That was not my goal. I did that for your good because as fun as that would be, the broken bones that would come from that action afterwards are far worse than the fun. The sorrow that you would reap for yourself is far worse. And this is how God's law works in our lives, guys. That there are boundaries and fences for our good for our safety and our protection. I love the example that Pastor Daniel uses sometimes. He's like, look, the law of God is actually like pretty awesome. It's like a pool. You are allowed to swim in that pool as much as you want until the part that's been broken off with a fence because there's alligators on the other side. We don't want you to go in the other side of the pool. It's not safe over there. We're not trying to rob you of joy and keep you out of the other side of the pool. And we're designed fences and boundaries for your good and your joy. If we want to experience abundant life in God, the way that David is experiencing in this psalm, in the midst of sorrow and pain and heartache, and if we want to experience a fullness of joy in Christ, the way that David is in this psalm, then we, we need to submit ourselves and recognize and submit to God the same way that David does. We need to submit to him as Savior, understanding our own neediness, the same way that David does in verse 1. We also have to recognize his lordship and submit to that lordship and understand that God is for our good and his glory, not our misery. We need to submit to his lordship. Guys, that, that, that is not a super complicated process. Submitting to Jesus as Lord can be as simple as asking for him to help you in your own life grow to love his word and trust his promises. It can be as simple as praying for God to ask you, excuse me, to pray to God and ask him to help you put sin to death. To help you hate the things that he hates and love the things that he loves. Asking him to help you grow in obedience. 
And guys, I can promise you this. If, if we do this, if we are a people of God who understand our own neediness and see Jesus not just as Savior, but we also submit to his lordship and follow him as Lord, we will experience exactly what David says he experiences in verses 9 through 11. Look. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Guys, the defining characteristic of someone who's truly found their rest in God is supernatural joy. As Paul says, it's the peace that goes beyond all understanding. And some of you guys have experienced and known believers and followers of Jesus who are mature enough in their faith where you see them emanate this and you're like, man, that, that, I want that. I don't know what it is. I don't know how they got it. I don't know what they did. I don't know if you can give me 10 easy steps to get there, but man, I want that. I want that level of trust and love. But David shares all, he doesn't talk about intellectual assent. He doesn't talk about understanding sound doctrine. Everything he describes there is an emotional response to finding your hope and joy in God. He says, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh dwells securely. Church, here's, what I, here's my hope for us. Here's my prayer for us. Here's what I pray for us daily. That we would find that kind of confidence in God. It is the greatest witness the world would ever see. If we want to equip people, if we want to engage people with the gospel, if we want to encourage people to grow in their faith and become growing followers of Jesus, if we want to empower them to take the gospel forward and continue to do that ourselves, we are only going to do that if our hope and our confidence rests in God, not in ourselves, not in our ministry, not in our doctrine, not in our ability uh, to create environments of ministry or know the right apologetic, it's only going to come if our courage and confidence rests in God. And that only gets derived in the same way that it derived from David. I'm broken. I'm needy. God loved me. He still loves me. He promised the Messiah he sent the Messiah and Jesus Christ. And I am saved and rescued in him. And in that salvation, I submit to him as Lord of my life. I want to leave you with these words. Because some of you may be here this morning and you, you've been walking with Jesus a long time and maybe you just need to be encouraged. Maybe you just need to be reminded that when I say, Submit, submitting to the lordship of Christ is submitting to the promises of God. You need to be reminded of the promises of God. Maybe you're here this morning and you've gone to church just like I did for years and years and years and years. And maybe you even, even have an intellectual head knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. Like if you had asked me at age 18, uh, Kevin, like who was Jesus? I would have said, oh, he, he's Lord. Well, what does that mean? Uh, I don't know. Well, why did Jesus come and die? I don't know. Well, like, what happened on the cross? Well, we got forgiven of our sins. See, I would have been able to say some things and know some truths about God, 
but I didn't know Jesus intimately. But to know him intimately is to submit to your neediness, to submit to what you need Christ's finished work to do on your behalf, but also to submit to him as Lord. And here's how you can trust him. Romans chapter five, starting in verse six. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Statement of fact, history, happened. And look at what he says. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God loved you so much that he died for you even when you were unworthy of it. And you're declared worthy because he declares you worthy, not because of something you've done. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. See what he's saying? It's like, look, the day of judgment will come, but the promise of what Christ did on the cross is that you will be saved from that judgment and that wrath. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. See, Paul, Paul's talking about not just a, a realization of justification before God and Christ, but he's also talking about the reality to walk through our lives as Christians in a way that's gonna bring God glory and allow us to submit to Jesus as Lord. God is gonna give us the ability to do that. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Notice how he talks about Everything having been done, you have been reconciled. You have been justified. You have been saved. Look what he says. What does it cause him to do? The same thing it causes, causes David to do. Rejoice. Rejoice in God. Paul goes on to say this in Philippians chapter one. I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. If you are here this morning, if you are in Christ, rest in that promise. And here's what I want to encourage you to do. If we can get somebody to turn on the lights and invite the, the band back up here. Every week at Aletheia, uh, after, after we preach the word, we have a response time. It's not an altar call or anything else, but it's a time for you to sit and ponder and reflect on how God's word impacted you. And I, and I just want you to think through a few things this morning. As you're sitting there reflecting, would you just ask God, where, where is my hope resting? Where is my courage resting? Because if I'm honest, from a, from a theological perspective, if someone asked me that question, my first answer would, of course, be God, right? That's the Sunday school answer. 
It's the answer we know to give if we grew up in the church for any season or period of time. But I would also probably, if I, if I sit and I reflect, I have some other answers to give. I, f- I find my hope in, in my ability to parent well. I, I derive my hope oftentimes in my communication skills or my ability to lead. Foolishly, I sometimes derive my hope in money, and we don't have any, Jackie. Sorry, honey. I love you. Maybe I derive a lack of hope there. I don't know. Maybe some, some days I, I derive my, my hope in what other people think of me or say about me. And here's the beauty of what David has just taught us and what Paul says as well. Let me take all those things I just listed, all those ways that I have put something else as Lord of my life and I've replaced Jesus' throne and placed something else on it that's unworthy of it. I can sit there. I can confess that to God. I can repent of that sin. And he who has begun a good work in me will see it through to the day of Christ Jesus because that's the promise he made to us. Will you take this time to reflect? Ask God where he's not Lord of your life. Maybe this is the day where you actually begin to follow him fully. Maybe this is the day where there's some serious areas of your life that need to be dealt with and need to be surrendered over to him. I don't know. But God does. Give it over to him in prayer. And then come up here and take communion. If you're a follower of Jesus, come up here and take communion and take communion as an act of worship. You know when we take communion, we're not coming up here and taking communion penitently, sorrowfully, because we're not sorrowful. Communion is not a sorrowful act. It's a joyful act. When we come up here, we are in action, showing submission to God. God, I submit that I am unable to earn your favor. I'm unable to earn your honor on my own but that Christ did it for me. With his flesh and his blood poured out to me, Christ secured that for me. And I'm gonna take his flesh, I'm gonna take his blood, I'm gonna submit, and then I'm gonna worship. And then will you just return to your seat and rejoice? Because you have an inheritance. He's your cup. He's your portion. He's your defense. And that's far better than anything the better to us than we deserve. Lord, help us to find our courage, our hope, and our rest in you. And in deriving that courage and that hope, use us to make your name great in Gainesville, in Florida, in North America, and across the globe, so that one day as we sit before your throne,